And so let's read together God's word beginning in Genesis 36, verse 1. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took wives from the Canaanite, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholibamah, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada born to Esau Eliphaz. Basimath bore Reuel, and Aholibamah bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all the beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into the land, a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Reuel, the son of Basimath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zipho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son, the chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, Mizah. These are the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife. The chiefs Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholibamah, the daughter of Ana, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Lotan, Shobel, Zibion, Ana, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobel, Alvan, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Aya, and Ana. He is, he is the Ana who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Ana, Dishon, and Aholibamah, the daughter of Ana. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Cheran. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zaavan, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobel, Zibion, Ana, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom. The name of his city being Dinhaba. Bela died and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. 
Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Evith. Hadad died, and Samla of Masrekah reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pal. His wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matrid, daughter of Mehazabab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places, by the names, the chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jatheth, Aholibama, Elah, Penon, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we look past all of these difficult names to pronounce. May we look past the lines and the uh, just the uncertainty as we read this. We, we were puzzled. We come to a passage like this and we think to ourselves, Lord, of what benefit is this to us? How do you speak to us through your word? And yet we trust you to do that. We ask you to do that. Lord, speak to us through your word today. Empower your preacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know that if we go back and listen to the recording, I pronounce some of those names three or four different ways. Uh, I, I read it, I practiced it, I still, those are just not normal readings that we do every day and not normal ways of practicing things. I listened to a few of them in my software to hear the pronunciation. I'm sure I butchered those as well. But I want us to see that there is something of benefit for us here in this passage, Genesis 36, for us today. When we look at the life of Esau, the last time he's mentioned in Scripture, the last thing that we see of Esau in Scripture is found in Hebrews 12. It's a passage that we've looked at before as we've considered the life of Esau, so it's something that we've read. But let me read a couple of these verses. The warning from the writer of Hebrews is that we're not to live like Esau lived. He says in Hebrews 12, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I'm tempted to take a bit of a rabbit trail and kind of unpack that passage in Hebrews a little bit. It's not the the, the usual list of sins. We have sexual immorality and unholiness, which which we might put together, but then there's that root of bitterness in there, and the writer kind of puts them all together. How does this fit? I think if we could say just one thing about that passage is, throughout this list and this warning not to be like Esau, is a warning to every one of us in this room and every one of us online, that there's something here that we've all struggled with, if not everything in this list. Now, as we've looked at the narratives about Esau, as we consider this passage in Hebrews, we might be inclined to think that Esau died as an unbeliever, and he possibly did. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us definitively uh, where Esau, in a sense, landed when it comes to faith. The warning, though, is not about where Esau ended up. The warning is about where, how Esau lived his life. 
we do know people who have been a part of the community of faith. They've been a part of the, the visible church, but they were never a part of the invisible church. They never possessed true saving faith. Maybe they walked away when they became uh, an adult, or maybe they walked away later in life and they became hard and, uh, and appeared to never have saving faith, only to later on be called back, in a sense, to, that God re- reaches them, captures their heart, saves them, and brings them to saving faith. We know people with testimonies like this. I think of a number of parents who have seen their children walk away from the faith and they've prayed and prayed and prayed through the years and seen the Lord bring them back. It's possible that that happened. It's really not worth a lot of time for us to consider that about Esau. My point is in bringing that up is only to say that no one is beyond the saving arm of our gracious God. And so the warning here is not so much for us to figure out where Esau ended up, but rather to see that the way that he lived his life was not pleasing to God. That's what I want us to understand. The the recorded history of Esau's life is one of a rejection of faith. We see from the very beginning in that he despised his birthright. There's more to it than just despising the birthright, that he was hungry for a bowl of stew. He, in a sense, despised the promises of God. He heard the same stories that Jacob did growing up. And we know that it wasn't because Jacob was better and figured it out or got lucky or whatever terminology we want to use. We know it was only by the grace of God that Jacob responded in the way that he did. And Paul makes that very clear when we come to Romans 9 and we see the sovereign election of God. But the contrast that's here between these two brothers and what I want us to focus on and I think the reason that Genesis 36 is here for us is not only to bookend, as the author has done throughout the book of Genesis, he bookends stories or epics of people with these genealogies. It's a, it's a bookmark for us to see that the story is now moving on, but it's also here to, to contrast. We've seen this already, that Moses, the author of Genesis, uses contrasts to help us to see important things. This is another one of those contrasts a contrast between the life of Jacob and the life of Esau. It's the way of the flesh versus the way of faith. It's walking by sight versus walking by faith. It's living with hope that is rooted in this world, trying to find our hope in this world versus finding our hope beyond this world. It's pursuing material gain instead of trusting in the treasure chests of God, hoping in political powers versus resting in the victory that Christ has already won. It's trusting in our own good works versus resting in the salvation that is ours by faith in Christ alone. It is two ways to live. That's what the contrast is painting for us here today. And so for the one who has yet to believe, it really is a question of how will you respond to God? Will you despise His grace as Esau despised his birthright? That was, in essence, what Esau was doing. Will you reject the love of God demonstrated to us in Jesus and that he laid down his life for our sins? Will you harden your heart and determine to live for yourself, doing life your own way with the hopes of getting all that you can out of a few short decades that are like the wind, here and gone? Or will you recognize your need for salvation, that you can't save yourself and receive God's love by trusting in the finished work of Christ in pain for our sins. Those are two different ways to live, Jacob and Esau. And yet for us as believers, we also see a contrast that's applicable to us as well. Every day we face choices, ways to 
live, two ways to live, decisions that are before us. Will we walk in holiness as is fitting one who has been purchased by the precious blood of Christ, or will we give in to our appetites, to our to sexual immorality, to our desire to be liked and accepted by others, to pleasure, to prosperity, whatever it is in that list? How will we live our lives? Will we put hope in the kings of this earth? with all their political power and their soothing words, hoping that our lives might be improved by their scepter? Or will we rest completely in the sovereign reign of King Jesus, who rules over the hearts of every leader, regardless of political stripe, knowing that our hope is not in this age, not in our country, not in our freedoms, but in the age to come? Will you labor to gain all that you can possess, that in your prosperity you might find pleasure or control, or satisfaction? Or will you be overwhelmed by the grace that has been shown to you in Christ and thus live lavishly as has been lavishly uh, given to you the grace of God? Will you, in turn, give of your very self? We could go on and on with these questions, but we're faced with these kinds of decisions every day. I mentioned some things that are kind of hot-button issues for us right now, and they will continue to be hot-button issues, particularly political issues, because it's in our face every day. And maybe I'm the only one in this room, but I've had a conversation with one or two of you, so I don't think I am, that my faith is kind of challenged at times when I see certain things in the news and I wonder, what's going to happen? What's going to be the outcome? Is this the end of this? Is this the beginning of that? I can get anxious and worried and worked up if I forget who is actually on the throne. Who is actually on the throne? And so the picture of the life of Esau that's painted before us is of benefit to us. Because one of the things that we see in all of this list, if you, if you don't make sense out of anything, notice that it, it is the picture of the birth of a nation. If you notice, the list repeats itself. It's, it's the picture of this enlarging growth of a nation of people. First, it's wives, and then the sons that are born to those wives. Then it's chiefs. They begin to, to develop into clans, so they have chiefs. And then later, it's kings, right? They're becoming this, this national entity. And what it, 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 the way that it appears is that this nation has become successful. He's intermarried with the Horites is one of the the countries that's mentioned. There's political power. There's political maneuvering. They appear prosperous as a nation. There's lots of people mentioned. There's land mentioned. There's growth. The livestock was too much for them to stay in the same location. But the end result of all of this is that living apart from faith always ends in destruction. It always ends in destruction. Because apart from faith, what awaits all of us is death. And apart from faith, death is, is it's not the end because then comes judgment, but it's, that, that's it. There's, you know, it's, it's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. And so what is marked by these, this contrast between Jacob and Esau is the way of faith versus the way of the flesh. So we see Esau has this material prosperity, he has the political prosperity, he's growing in power. Uh, it mentions in verse 31, there were kings ruling in Edom before there ever was a monarchy in Israel. That's Moses' way of kind of hinting at that from an earthly perspective, from a human perspective, Edom kind of took off and grew and was more successful than Israel. They had kings before Israel did. 
But as we will see, the faithless life ends in ruin. So as we begin in verse 1, we see a phrase that we have seen a number of times. And I know that when I say we're beginning in verse 1 and we're this far in, you think, oh my goodness, how long are we going to be here? Don't worry, we're going to get through this in a timely way. But we see a phrase that is, uh, captures our attention, or I hope it does. These are the generations of, right? We've seen this phrase used by Moses over and over in Genesis. It is a way, again, of bookending or bookmarking uh, one generation to the next. And so he gives these genealogies as a way to tell the end of the story and the beginning of the next story. So this is highlighting the end of the story of Esau as a man, but it's the beginning of the story of Edom... As a nation, how many times did you, as we read through it, did you notice those parenthetical phrases, Esau is Edom? Think in terms of Jacob is Israel, right? The, the, these, these two sons, these grandsons of Abraham, who was promised to be a father of many nations, is now birthed, these two nations are being birthed from these two grandsons. Jacob is becoming Israel, Esau is becoming Edom. But as we know from Scripture, the story of redemptive history takes the path of Jason, uh, Jacob, right? Because Jacob is in the line of the promise. Esau is not the line of promise. And so while we'll see Edom again in Scripture, this is kind of the end of the story of Esau as a person and the beginning of Edom as a nation. Now, all of the names that are listed here, as I've said, they're not only hard to pronounce, they're kind of overwhelming But the big picture that I want us to see is that this is the birth of a nation, that Abraham had been promised to be the father of many nations, and that's exactly what we see unfolding here. And while we don't have time to follow the history of Edom all the way through Scripture, I do think it's worth considering a few of the highlights of Edom. Do you recognize the name Edom as you've read through Scripture? It pops up in different places. It's not just here in Genesis. Edom was to become a thorn in the side of Israel. And so we see Edom mentioned throughout not just the narratives in the Old Testament, but even the Psalms we see Edom mentioned. It's never in a positive light because Edom, even though he was a brother of Israel, became an enemy of Israel. And the first thing that we see, or the first time that we see it happening, is following the Exodus. So the the people of God leave Egypt. They're going to the Promised Land. After their time in the wilderness, they have to pass through Edom. And what does Edom do but but block the way? Now, Edom geographically was along the way with these natural cliffs. And so they could use the geography of Seir, where they had landed, uh, to, to basically control who could go through and who couldn't. And so they used this to their own advantage. And God would remember this, of how they treated his people. In fact, Moses speaks of their future when he describes Edom as melting in fear in the Song of Moses following the exodus from Egypt. Later on in redemptive history, we see the prophet Obadiah. Remember, the if you memorize the books of the Bible, Obadiah is one of them. It's one of those little books in the Bible. It's the shortest minor prophets, 21 verses long. It's one of those that we easily would skip past or, or keep going beyond. Um, there's it, It's hard to uh, to maybe appreciate, but Obadiah is completely focused on Edom. Obadiah was a prophet who pronounced a judgment against Edom. And in particular, what they had done, they had done the same thing they did before when Israel was coming out of Egypt, but this time it was when Israel was being taken into captivity by the Babylonians. There were leftovers. There were those who scattered, who got away, the fugitives. 
And what did Edom do? Not only did they block their way, but they captured them and turned them over to the Babylonians. And so that pronouncement of Edom, that judgment against Edom that Obadiah made uh, is what is contained in that book of Obadiah, those 21 verses. And as we move further in history, we see a particular descendant that stands in opposition to God. The Herods. King Herod. Herod the Great. He was an Edomite. He was a descendant of Edom. And as we know in the birth story of Jesus, Herod attempted to destroy the promised king who was born as he ordered that all male male newborns two years and under would be killed uh, when Jesus was born. And so we see these two legacies that emerge. The legacy of Esau, one of moral depravity, one of uh, attack against the people of God, one a life lived in opposition to God, and Jacob, who in Israel captures the grace of God. And so uh, that's the, the, the image that's before us. Now, you may notice as we read through the names, there's some repetition. There's a lot of repetition because the list, what they're doing is they're expanding. So the, the author's going back and repeating the birth order, but with ex, this expanding view, again, it's the growth or the birth of a nation. But it's confusing uh, at first read or maybe second read because some of the names change. And so we think, are there contradictions here? But there aren't. It's actually uh, names, different names were used that represented the same person, just like Jacob and uh, Israel are used interchangeably. Edom and Esau are used interchangeably. This is a common practice in the East that where uh, surnames were used in the place of proper names or names were changed based on a significant event in someone's life. They were given a new name. And so that's some of what is going on in these different groupings as the author records. So, but again, what I want us to see, sons, chiefs, kings. It's this growing, expanding nation. Some other things that stand out in this particular text is, in verse 2, Moses reminds us where Esau got his wife. He took wives from the Canaanites. And most commentators agree that this was kind of a, a jab at, at uh, Esau because this was not according to the will of God. God had warned his people not to intermarry with the Canaanites, And we saw Esau doing that when we went through his life story. Even after he wanted to seemingly make amends with his parents, he went that direction as if that was going to appease them. And we left scratching our heads. Uh, And so this is what Esau did. He went and he married these wives from among the pagans. So these then these lists are those wives, their sons, and eventually those sons would become the leaders of the, the clans that would then be ruled by chiefs and then later kings. When we look in verse 6, though, we see this a little bit of, of narrative about him leaving the promised land because the land couldn't support them. He moves to the land of Seir. This is what became the geography of the nation of Edom. And the reasoning that's given in verse 7 says, For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. What does that remind us of? There's another story that we went, we were in not too long ago. I say not too long ago. We've been in Genesis for a little while. I know that. Uh, we're making it through, though. But remember Lot and Abraham when they had to part ways? It was the same reason. It was economics. And yet it wasn't simply economics. Again, what most commentators suggest is that what Moses is recording here 
is not what was actually the case. In other words, for, for Esau to have stayed there, it appeared like there wasn't enough land to support them. But if Esau had trusted the promises of God and known that his grandfather and his father had been given this land and, and had looked with eyes of faith, there would have been plenty of space for them. But, but we're getting a contrast of two different lives here. Jacob remained by faith. Esau looked with his own eyes, with his own wisdom, and decided that Seir was a better location. And so he moved on and settled his people there. One other highlight that I think is worth mentioning is in verse 12 is the birth of Amalek. This was the father of the nation of the Amalekites, a bitter enemy of Israel. And because of their treacherous dealings with God's people, the prophet Samuel commanded King Saul to wipe them out, to destroy them in judgment. And you may remember recently in one of Clayton's sermons, he mentioned this account, this particular account. So Agag, that king that Saul spared when he was told to wipe out everyone, he was an Amalekite. He was a descendant of Edom. And Samuel had to come in as the prophet and take care of business when Saul failed to obey him. So these were the descendants of Esau. One other descendant that I think is worth mentioning, it's not traced in, the, in, in Scripture, but it's traced by the historian Josephus, which uh, many biblical scholars put a lot of weight in his work and his historical records. He traces the lineage of Haman to Edom, which I think is interesting. You remember Haman from the story of Esther. Haman is the one who opposed the Jews. He sought to destroy Mordecai and the Jews. And, of course, we know the end was that he was hung on the very gallows that he built to kill all of the Jews. Haman was a descendant of Esau. So my point in mentioning these highlights, both in this passage as well as some in history, is to show us that what appears to be a great nation, this unfolding drama that would ensue in the years ahead, shows the fruit of living a life apart from faith in God. And this theme is picked up in several of the psalms that we read. And these psalms are psalms that resonate with us right now in our current day and age. It's the psalms that ask the question, why do the wicked prosper, Lord? Why, why do, do, do the rich seem to get everything and do everything and no success? Psalm 83, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. The tents of Edom, there he is. And the Ishmaelites, we remember Ishmael, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, there's Amalek again, Philistia, we know the Philistines, with the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher also has joined them, they are the strong arm of the children of Lot. And so here the psalmist is painting the picture of the wicked who seek to have, or seem to appear to have the advantage. They appear to be prospering and the psalmist is asking the question, Lord, how long? And God says, patiently wait. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but patiently wait, because I'm going to have the last word. We see it in Psalm 49. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble? When the iniquity of those who cheat me surround me, 
Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get, you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. The knock here is not on the rich as a category. Because guess what? We're all in that category. Every one of us who live in this country at this time, it's the most prosperous that, that people have ever known in history. Compared to the majority of the world, we're all rich. So it's not the category of being rich, but it's this image of being wealthy without understanding. Not knowing where this wealth and the blessing comes from. It's living in arrogance, thinking that somehow we have accomplished it, we have done it. And putting our confidence and our hope in that. Psalm 73 is another one that paints this picture. The life that seems to prosper. And God is continually reminding us that he will have the last word. He will have the last word. We live in such a time when the wicked appear to prosper. A time where it appears that living by sight is wiser than living by faith. We're often insulted for our faith. And yet, as we see in this genealogy, the prosperity is short-lived. It doesn't last The empires of man rise and fall, and there is only one kingdom that will endure forever. And so this brings us back to our initial question, our initial idea of these two ways to live. We can either walk by faith, as Jacob did, or we can walk by sight, as Esau did. We will either hold on to the promises of God, or we will jettison this hope and seek our future in the things of this world, power, wealth, possessions, pleasure, security, Make your own list. What are the things that you rest in? What are the things that you think, if I just had this, I'd be okay? If I could just take care of this, if, just, if I just had this in place, I'd be all right. That's, that's what we're tempted to trust in. But if there is anything that our current events testify to, it is that all of these things fail. Every one of us can look back eight months ago and realize how quickly our world can change. How quickly the things that we hope in and have confidence in and find rest in can simply vanish. Our economy came to its knees in a matter of weeks. And although the stock market may bounce back, we all know that there is still a lot left that has to be done for any sense of security to remain. Where is our hope? Is that where our hope is? In the economy? If the economy is okay, we're okay? Is that, is that what we're putting our hope and our trust in? You think of this ever-changing culture. It's fickle. It has no moral anchor. It can cancel the powerful in one news cycle. Think of the pleasures that we enjoy or did enjoy. Travel. It's canceled. Vacations. Canceled. Movies. Canceled. Sporting events. Halted. Restaurants. Shuttered. The things, the the nice things that we enjoyed, how quickly they go away. And our security that we've enjoyed is continually rocked by the the, the continual shifts 
that we see both in the political world, in the economic world, even in the, the spiritual world, in our world, in our age. So what Esau needed in this time is exactly what we need, and that is a hope that is not temporal, that is not temporal rooted in this world, and a hope that is not temporary, that is vanishing, that is fleeting. So for you who have yet to believe, there are two ways to live that are before you. You continue to walk by sight. You can try and grasp all that you can in this life. Try and get as much as you can. But remember the words of the psalmist. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. Nothing that you're able to accomplish in this life, nothing that you're able to gain in this life will be of any benefit to you in your death. And so the alternative is to walk by faith, to consider the skies above, to consider the oceans, the vastness and all they contain, to look at the stars, to think of the beauty of the sunset and realize that creation declares the glory of God. There's a reason we all stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon and say, wow, right? I mean, every night I walk the dog and look at the stars and I say, wow, right? There's a reason. Atheist and believer alike say, wow, because the heavens declare. This isn't an accident. Even if you look beyond the beauty of creation, the very meaning that our lives long for, scream of a personal God. And he is there, and he has made a way for us to know him, and not only to know him, but to love him, and to be known by him in relationship. And his way of reconciliation is the work of his son, Jesus, who came and died and paid for our sins to make things right between us and God. And so the choice that is before you today is, the, is, is, is painted in the story of Jacob and Esau, these two ways to live. And so hear this call to come to Christ, to believe in Him, to find rest for your soul, that you may possess a hope that is beyond this world, that is beyond this age, and that is beyond the grave. A hope that will carry you through. Now for you who are believers, who are already trusting in Christ, I want to come back to this for us as well, because we have two ways to live as well. We, have the, we, we still struggle to walk by faith. We're, we're holding on to Christ. We're securing Him. He's got us. We know He won't let us go. But are there days where we doubt that? Are there days where we're so gripped by fear that we forget that He has us, that He will finish the work that He started in us? I think that is true. We so easily forget. And we become distracted. And we become weighed down. Too many news cycles. And we're fretting because we think, what is about to come? What is about to come? And the story of Esau is a reminder for us not to become fixated on the world events, the shifts in the culture, the rise and the fall of those in power, our investments, or anything else that we might hope in. Instead, we are to daily walk by faith and not by sight. So what does this look like? It means believing the gospel, which I hope we all do, but then it's clinging to the gospel. It is repeating the gospel back to ourselves. It's preaching the gospel back to ourselves. It's going deep into God's word to find these promises that are true, that we need to hear again and again and again to be reminded of what is right and what is true. Do we become anxious about diseases and catastrophes and the things that can happen to us? Here, Isaiah 41.10, Fear not. 
for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Are you concerned about shifts in political power and those who will rule in the coming years? Hear Daniel 2. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. Are you worried about the change in our culture, the seeming downward spiral of our world? Here's Psalm 33. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. And so remind yourself of who God is, of what is right and what is true. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all that dwells therein. He not only knows the number of hairs on our heads, he has numbered our days. No one can thwart his plans. And he has promised us who are in Christ this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There it is. May we walk not according to the flesh as Esau did, but may we walk with confidence in the Spirit who indwells each one of us who believe, empowered by His omnipotent presence, filled with courage by His immutable character, and looking with hope because we know He keeps His promises. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you plant these truths deeply in our hearts today? Would you strengthen us with courage by your Spirit's power to know of the grip of the gospel of grace, that nothing can separate us from you, that we could know the boundless love that is ours, given to us, demonstrated to us in Christ Jesus, so that as we face challenges, as we face real threats, as we face real fears, real things that that cause us concern, that we would not become weighed down and overcome by fear and anxiety, but we would know who you are, what you have promised, and what you will do so that we may walk in hope and enjoy, encourage. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.